Dear listener, we hope that you've been enjoying the variety of podcasts that we have on our network. Now is your opportunity to help us by telling us a little more about you. Please visit jcastnetwork.org survey and complete our listener survey so that we can learn more about you and your listening habits. Again, please visit jcastnetwork.org survey. Thanks so much. You are listening to Sermons with Rabbi David Seth Kirchner, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. David Horvitz is the founding editor of the online newspaper, The Times of Israel, which is, if not the, but one of the most read Jewish newspapers in the world today. David was previously the editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post and editor and publisher of the Jerusalem Report. In his writing and his lectures, he often seeks to promote intra-Jewish tolerance and to urge the Israeli leadership to devote more attention to the struggle for Israeli legitimacy on the second battlefield, the battlefield of the media, the legal arena, and in diplomatic forums. David has written from Israel for newspapers around the world, including the New York Times, the Los Angeles, the Los Angeles Times, the Irish Times, and the London Independent. He is a frequent interviewee and you might have seen him on television, whether it's in CNN, the BBC, Sky, Fox, News, NPR, and other radio stations and media outlets. He lectures widely in Israel, here in the United States, Europe, all on Israeli current affairs, and he regularly gives the introductory briefing to, uh, about Israel to congressional delegations that are brought to Israel under the auspices of APAC. That means that freshmen Congress people who come in their first visit or people are coming for their 31st visit like Steny Hoyer get an update on what the pulse and the temperature of happening in Israel by David. He's normally the first person in which they speak with. Israeli and international figures, including all of Israel's recent prime ministers and President Barack Obama when he visited Israel as a candidate in 2008, George W. Bush, Tony Blair, Vladimir Putin, and to the particular delight of his children, Paul McCartney, have been interviewed by David Horowitz. David is the author of 2004's book, Still Life with Bombers, Israel in the Age of Terrorism, and 2000, A Little Too Close to God, The Thrills and Panic of a Life in Israel. He edited and he co-wrote the Jerusalem Report's 1996 biography of Yitzhak Rabin, which was entitled Shalom Friend. It was published in 12 countries, and it won the US National Jewish Book Award for nonfiction. He's the recipient of countless awards in journalism as well. David graduated from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He was profiled in the university's 90th anniversary president's report as the graduate who had most impacted Israel's reality in the field of media, alongside several other Israeli luminaries. David immigrated to Israel from London in 1983 and did his army reserve service in the educational corps. And of all of these feats in which I just shared with you, the one of which makes him most proud is the fact that he is married to his beautiful bride, Lisa, and that they have three children together. On a personal note, I will tell you that David has an uncanny ability through his writings, his editorials that I am blessed to read basically every week to summarize and capture the essence of so much of the tension, the struggle, the feeling, the celebration that I have when dealing with any one particular issue. Whether it's related to wars, whether it's related to settlements, whether it's related to elections, you name it, David really has a firm grasp on the left, 
the right, the center, and sharing a balanced view on how people in the diaspora and in Israel are feeling, and it's really a gift that all of you who aren't subscribing to the Times of Israel should be. It is Temple Emanuel's great honor to welcome forward my friend and our guest for this Shabbat, David Horvitz. So David, we're going to uh, turn the table. You're used to interviewing people, and at APAC, at the policy conference almost every single year, we get to see you with some Israeli luminary who you are um, interviewing and unpacking their challenges, their feelings, and today I get the blessing of doing that with you. Uh, I apologize, I'm not as seasoned as you are on this, so I beg your indulgence. We have some real reporters in our midst this Shabbat, um, but uh, I thank you for your indulgence. So I want to start with, um, with this particular case. Elora Zaria. This is a uh, young man that we talked about in our synagogue a couple weeks ago who was being tried for um, either terrorism, vigilantism, exacting revenge, taking the law into his own hand, however you want to call it. You have this case that has divided the state of Israel. You have issues of the settlement block Amunim, which you spoke about last night, and it's uh, dismantling that has divided parts of Israel. You have uh, domestic issues like, um, like um, uh, the, this word's escaping me for uh, civil marriage, right? That is dividing Israel. This is a concept that is becoming uh, more and more acute to Americans in particular, because Americans are realizing that we live in a United States that is indeed divided, very different. Can you talk a little bit about some of these divisions? What's causing these divisions within the state of Israel? What's happening that's deepening these divisions? And what you think a remedy to bridge some of them are? And do you think, even within these divisions, there are some items that are happening in the state of Israel that are indeed common denominators? Okay, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. <laughs> so how long have we got, exactly? Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's lovely to be here, and Mazal Tov to the two Mitzvah families, and this is an incredible shul, and uh, I mean, just glorious, wonderful building to be in, and uh, a privilege to be here. Uh, so uh, we, didn't <laughs> we didn't discuss the questions beforehand, um, so that's a nice little simple zinger there to, to get us going. Look, you know, Israel is, um, you know, what are we going to turn? It's 2017, we're going to turn 67 this year? 48, 69 this year, my goodness. We're going to turn 69 this year. All the, you know, you, you spoke of, you, know, you raised several examples there. We have the, the, the soldier concerned was actually convicted of manslaughter. That's uh, um, that particular case. He, he shot dead uh, a disarmed Palestinian assailant who had attacked soldiers minutes before, but was deemed by the court to no longer pose a threat, and this soldier came and, and, and killed him. And he will, I assume he'll be jailed for, I would think, something like three years. We'll see how it plays out. Um, you know, you mentioned other examples. Yeah, we're, we're of, I mean, I don't, know, I don't know how you guys, what debate is like at the Shabbat table, but I don't think the Jews are a particularly, you know, a conformist, consensual, uh, easygoing, non-provocative. I mean, we, you know, we're opinionated people, right? The whole, I mean, one of the great wonders of Judaism is the, the stress in, in study of questioning, right? Judaism is not a faith where you simply say, oh yeah, that's what they handed down generations ago, and this is what we do, and we do it unthinkingly. All of the essence of Torah study and Gemara study is raising questions and, and pondering and getting to the essence and boy, does that you know, pr produce differences of opinion. 
Uh, I'm not sure that they're getting worse, I think, in some areas. I mean, there's a great, huge divide. It's often misrepresented as an orthodox secular divide in Israel. But in fact, it's a divide really between the ultra-orthodox and the rest about the burdens, the approaches to life and the burdens of, of, of society and so on. So within Israel, when, when the country was revived, tragically too late to save the Jews of, of Europe from the Holocaust, the leaders of ultra-orthodox Judaism went to our first prime minister, Mr. Ben-Gurion, and they said, you know, we're, we're trying to rebuild Jewish scholarship, so please can you exclude us, the, the, the best and the brightest scholars, from, from military service. And Mr. Ben-Gurion, a secular man, but doubtless weighed down by uh, accumulated Jewish guilt, um, said yes, said okay, you know, you guys study and the rest of us will, will keep the country safe. That became, instead of the exception for the best and the brightest, became the norm. And, and it, lots of ultra-Orthodox young men, on the whole, I would say, don't serve in the army. Many of them don't work. Their, their wives increasingly work. Uh, many, many children and lots of work you know, on, the, on the shoulders of the women. The, the, the inequality there has been a great source of friction within Israel. Why is it that we're all sending our kids to the army and the ultra-Orthodox young men don't go to the army? I would say that at, at the moment it's less bitter and vicious than it was 5, 10, 15 years ago. Has it been solved? No. Have the, are they gradually raising the proportion of young ultra-Orthodox men who do go into the army? Yes, they are. But I think we've become a little bit more tolerant. Broadly speaking, though, there's a lot of truth in your question. I don't know how, I don't know what your relations are, are like within, with people and, and other streams of Judaism. In Israel, the Jews are nastiest to each other. Some of the things that Jews say to each other, if other people anywhere else in the world said them to Jews, you know, we'd be going crazy. That's a, that's a polite word. But because we're the majority in Israel, we feel that we can say horrible things to each other. However, say anything nasty about us or try and challenge us, and we hang together. I don't remember who I was talking with about yesterday, about the driving in Israel. Driving in Israel is terrible. I was somebody at, at dinner last night here in the shul. The driving in Israel is terrible, but the, the willingness to help people who are injured in road accidents is extraordinary. Like, road accident anywhere, there's somebody, we're all, you know, most, most people do the army. A lot of people train in basic emergency medicine because of their army service. So if there's a road accident, you know, it's not like, is there a doctor on the plane? Is there a medic nearby in a road accident in Israel? Like, everywhere, and people will stop. You know, so you've got, in that story, in that reality, is kind of all the essence of what you're asking me about. Wouldn't it be nicer if we Israelis drove a little more slowly and didn't cause accidents in the first place, or didn't argue with each other quite so nastily, or a little more intolerant, and yet, in times of crisis, we'll always come through. I think, broadly speaking, internal Israeli divides worry me. I mean, they worry me. And the, and the, the political divides worry me. The religious divides, you know, the divides, you know, the, the, the non diplomatic security-related divides in Israel worry me less than they used to. And ultimately, because we're a tiny little country, nine miles wide at its narrowest point, on the western edge of a, a seriously unpleasant landmass, I mean, it's the worst neighborhood in the world, I think. You know, ultimately, because we know that, that unfortunately is, is an essential, and it is, a, a rallying and unifying point. All differences you know, fall to the side when times are really tough and people are basically trying to kill you. Then we hang together, I, I think, like no other nation on earth. Uh, in, your, uh, in your answer, you remind me of, reminds me of two things. Like, you know, I, I tease my brother incessantly, but don't let anyone else tease my brother. And the second piece is a sad reality, which is we do galvanize as a people, as a community uh, during times of tragedy. I think that's more part of human DNA than necessarily Jewish DNA. We saw that in the wake of tragedies in our shul, tragedies on 
Um, and that is something that we have to learn how to, uh, how to angle ourselves towards. So let's go from a light question uh, to a lighter question, okay? Uh, David, what does Trump's Israel look like? Um, is it a better Israel? You know, 66% of Israelis, I think it was maybe even higher, perceive Barack Obama to be, and this was a recent poll, to be unsympathetic to Israel, to its crises, and to its challenges. That number went up exponentially after the Iran deal, but the number of people who were thoughtful of the notion that Barack Obama was indeed sensitive to Israel and thoughtful and caring to its crises was, was very low after his visit to Israel. So my question now becomes, how does Trump and his White House affect the way that Israel's perceived, affect the way that Netanyahu governs without any pressures from the West, and to just put a postscript on there, tell me a little bit about your thoughts on moving the embassy to Jerusalem. Is it plausible and is it good? Okay, good. Light, another, light another nice, simple question. Yeah. When, are we, when are we getting to the, to the serious, you know, heavy ones? Serious really, ones I, feel, yeah. I feel we're just skating over the surface there. Um, so a little bit about, about Obama first. Uh, Obama and really American presidents and relationships between Israelis and Israel and American administrations. First of all, I think that, you know, we're at an APEC event here. Uh, it's APEC who brought me here, and APEC is devoted to, to keeping strong, and it's an existential need for Israel, this relationship between Israel and the United States, and for all that presidents, boy, the presidents have a personal impact. I'm not one of those uh, academics who thinks, well, really, it's all about, you know, broader pictures, it's not the personality. I think the personality and the, the predispositions and the, and the conceptions of the, of the people who are running the show impact tremendously. But the relationship goes much deeper than that. And if we're particularly happy at the moment or particularly unhappy at the moment, pendulums swing and the relationship is essential. And the, pillar, the pillars of the relationship are, are sound because of self-interest, because we're on the front line in Israel against some really dark forces and we're trying to preserve the same values that America is trying to preserve, which are you know, freedoms, the, you know, the ultimate freedom, of course, being the, the, the freedom to live life, right, to enjoy the divine gift of life. Well, we're all sharing that, that struggle. Obama was never particularly popular in Israel, not only for reasons that you would, you would sort of deduce very coldly, but because of emotion. Israelis respond to, to people who they feel have an emotional empathy for the country. So George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, right? in other words, not a partisan thing, we love them in Israel. Was, was Bush a particularly good president for Israel? You could argue that Iran got stronger and nobody stopped them. But emotionally, you know, there was a sense of affinity. Clinton, we love Bill Clinton in Israel. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. If he converts to Judaism and moves to Israel, we would elect Bill Clinton to any office in the land. <laughs> and maybe he'll have more time now and might consider doing it. I, you know, not a, not a bad. But the emotional, and there wasn't a sense of emotional affinity. When Obama came in 2013, actually his popularity among Israelis rose quite dramatically. And the survey that, yeah, we sh obviously you've learned not to believe any opinion polls ever, correct? Right? After the last few weeks, right? But you know, the survey that says he, he was, I don't know what you said, 66%, was that around the time of the UN vote? I mean, the, UN, the US abstained on a vote that not only branded settlements illegal, but also essentially uh, branded the old city of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, the Western Wall, occupied Palestinian territory. That did not go down terribly well in Israel, and the fact that the American administration chose not to veto that resolution did not do wonders, among other things, for, uh, for Obama's popularity in Israel. I think Israelis, you know, if you look at over the course of the eight years, lots of disagreements over settlements, lots of disagreements over the Iran deal, but an awareness that when push came to shove, military assistance, diplomatically until that final motion, and it wasn't, you know, it was, it was an up and down relationship. We've actually had worse. 
Uh, and now we come to, to an era with, with Trump. Is, it, again, the opinion polls that we should never believe. Uh, Israelis were asked, who would you vote for ahead of the elections? They, 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 they chose Clinton over, over Trump, but they said in the same polls that they thought Trump would be better for Israel, which is a really contradictory, hard to explain, unless you look a little deeper and we didn't quite know where we would be with Trump, whereas Clinton we kind of knew. Israeli Americans, in other words, Israelis who have American citizenship and had the right to vote, actually chose Trump over Clinton by probably 15, 20%, I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. So lots of uncertainty there. And now, you know, what does, what does Trump's Israel look like? You know, I, I would politely, I'd argue with the question even, right? It's not Trump's Israel, it's our Israel, right? So, so which I know you know, but you know, you're asking me what impact will it have? You know, I don't know. We, it's not surprising that there's been a change of tone on Iran. Trump had no investment in the Iran deal, whereas Clinton would have wanted to, to make it look good unless it was really collapsing. Trump wants to show that it was a terrible deal, where he shares, I would say, the, the mainstream Israeli sense that it was a bad deal, that a better deal could have been done. That's how Israelis feel. Not that there wasn't a great effort and that that was worthy, and not that it doesn't stave them off a little bit from the bomb, but our sense in Israel that there was a better deal that would have dismantled more of their program, that would have, that would have made it harder for them, and that an opportunity was missed. So Trump probably shares that, if, if not more so. So you're seeing a change of tone already. On the Palestinian front, it's quite interesting, right? He hasn't, you know, some mild criticism of, of settlements in the last couple of days for the first time, although silence on fairly large-scale plans, you know, that were announced in the last few days. You know, I, I don't think anybody should predict how anything's going to pan out. Um, I can tell you as a journalist, you, you know, you go to bed in Israel, it's midnight, or you want to go to bed, but you know it's only 5 o'clock in New Jersey and New York, so you know there's still news. We're running a 24-7 website. You've got to keep on the ball. Now we have a president here who's tweeting at 2 in the morning, right? So there is, there's no respite for anybody, okay? So if you could change that, I'd, I'd appreciate that. Just tweet at, an, at a normal hour and, and have some empathy for the time difference for people, you know, seven hours ahead of you are trying to get some sleep, okay? Um, so I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be. But, but you know, the, 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 the embassy, which is your final question, you know, your final clause of that question, is a good case in point. I would say this, and, and I, I, I suspect many of you would agree with me. You know, Jerusalem is the capital of the only place on earth where the Jews have ever been sovereign. You know, why are we heading, why are we praying in that direction? Because we're looking to Jerusalem. It's the only place we ever wanted to be sovereign, never willingly left, always sought to return to. Do I want the international community to recognize that Jerusalem is our historic capital? Of course I do. And by extension, therefore, do I want the embassy to be moved to Jerusalem? Of course I do. But I also kind of like living, and I want to carry on doing that. And I want my family to be safe. And, and I would urge some wisdom, therefore. There are a lot of ways to move an embassy. Okay, you can say, we're going to build an embassy in Jerusalem and spend 20 years building it. You can change the, na the, the brass plaque on the consulate in Talpiot tomorrow and lots of things in between. You can do it as an act of defiant, in-your-face challenge to the Palestinians and say, and by this, we essentially symbolize that we recognize Jewish claims throughout Jerusalem, including the Palestinian neighborhoods that were annexed in the 67 war. I'm not talking about the old city, the Palestinian neighborhoods outside the old city. Or you can say, we have an embassy in West Jerusalem, undisputed, pre-1967 Jewish Jerusalem. As for the rest of the city, of course, we will have to negotiate. There are so many ways that it can be done. I say again, I'd like to see the international community recognize Jerusalem as our capital with all the symbolic acts that go along with it, but I hope that they will be handled with wisdom. Uh, thank you, David. So here, here's the next question for you. Uh, 
dovetailing on this issue of, uh, of Trump's vision. When, when I said Trump's Israel, I was um, inferring from Michael Oren's book, Ally, where he said, you know, Barack Obama has a vision for Israel. The only problem with it is that Israelis don't. Um, and I, I wanna, wanna ask you this, I think, um, this challenging issue, I'm gonna ask you in the form of a homily, which is, as Jews, our right hand is dedicated to Zionism. We are lovers of the state of Israel as a whole, supportive of the state of Israel as a whole, and wanna see its, um, its sovereignty and its defense and its celebration and its success. With our left hand, we are defined as Jews by acts in the Torah, welcoming in the stranger, acts of loving kindness, tikkun olam. These things define us as who we are. We have been put into a place today where it feels like, not saying it is necessarily, but it feels like that we're not allowed to use both of our hands, that they're not congruous, right? Because if we are supportive of Israel, the other pieces are trumped, and no pun intended. And if we are using our left hand, then, you know, caring about tikkun olam and welcoming the stranger and all of the social action issues, those issues dwarf the right hand issues. How do we live in a world that's going to encourage some ambidexterity? Because, to finish the homily, it feels like we're fighting a fight with one arm tied behind our back. So what do we do to make those two places congruent? Because right now, as one, and I think I speak on behalf of many, as a Jew who has some ambidexterity, I feel like I'm forced to make Sophie's choice every day. I have to choose a left or a right hand in which to work with. Okay, you're, you know, I must say you're asking me um, pretty, pretty good questions here. Um, Are you hiring? Yeah, uh, yeah, okay, sure. Yes, I think they'd be sorry to, you know, to lose you, and the pay is really bad. But, um, but hey, you get to live in Jerusalem. Um, anyway, up to you, doors are always open. Um, you see, I, I, don't, I, I want to spare you that conflict. Uh, there are at least three hands, and I want you to be able to use all of them in your, in your homily. In other words, I, I don't think that, that it, is, it is necessary as a Zionist to feel constrained in, in the other aspects of Judaism, in the tikkun olam aspect of Judaism, in the, in the reaching out. Um, I think you can do both. I think you have to be sober about the challenges that we face in Israel. I'm politically in Israel, I'm somewhere in the confused middle ground. I have a, I have a lot of empathy for people further to my left and further to, to my right. Our dilemmas are acute. If they were straightforward, we wouldn't have the dilemmas and, and it would be obvious what, what we needed to do. You know, you look back at fairly recent history and, and you saw an Israel that was ready to make really far-reaching territorial compromises for the, for the cause of peace. You know, obviously we relinquished territory to, to make peace with Egypt in the 70s. We, we made peace with Jordan three months after the king stretched out his hand to Prime Minister Rabin. Just a few years ago, before the Syrian civil war, Israel's security chiefs were recommending at least see if there's a deal to be done with Assad in Syria. Yes, we'd have to give up the high ground, the dangerous relinquishing of the Golan Heights, but they said it was something that could be at least considered. One of the big arguments that we had with the Obama administration was what kind of risks can we dare to take? And, and there I think you have to be sober. We, we were very close, or we certainly were considering giving up the high ground to Assad's Syria. Now, now I, I tell you that from the perspective of February 2017, there is not a sane Israeli who wishes, if only we'd relinquish the Golan for peace with Assad in Syria. I mean, it's, a, it's an anarchic war zone in which four million people are, have fled, eight million people are internally displaced, hundreds of thousands of people have been killed, and a few short years ago, we were thinking of taking a security risk to make peace with that regime. 
In other words, our, our reality, it, it's not so easy to, be, to, to hope for the best and be generous. In fact, it's potentially suicidal. When Netanyahu said to Israelis two and a half years ago, at the time of the last war with Hamas, where two of my kids were in combat units and my, kids, my eldest son's best friend was killed doing what he does, which was blowing up the tunnels that Hamas had dug under the border, at the time of that war, Netanyahu said to Israelis, maybe now you recognize why I'm not rushing to relinquish territory in the West Bank, because in the Middle East of our day and age, when you relinquish adjacent territory, people fire rockets over it, or they dug, dig tunnels underneath it, and you don't know who's going to take over in the territory you relinquish. And therefore, we have to be wary. At the very least, we have to be wary. Does that mean we have to be selfish and self-centered and, uh, and, and not seek to help others? No, there's no contradiction there. That's, that's the, the point of my answer to you. So at the moment, uh, the last thing I heard, Israel's gearing up to take in 100 refugee children from Syria. We have a field hospital on the border. Israel maintains a field hospital on the Syrian border, and we take hundreds of people. I don't even know how, how it is that they get to the border, but they do. And if we can't help them medically at the field hospital, we bring them into Israel. There was a couple of years ago, the first Sabra Syrian baby was born in a hospital in Sfat in northern Israel. It was a nurse, actually, a Syrian nurse. She, she needed some medical treatment that she couldn't get to a hospital in Syria. She got to the field hospital. They brought her into Israel. She had her child inside Israel. They had to evacuate the, the operating theater at Ziv Medical Center in Sfat a couple of years ago when somebody who they were about to perform life-saving surgery on turned out to have sort of hand grenades in his pants pockets. Uh, not because he was trying to sneakily do but he'd come straight from who knows what uh, a theater of war. We have an army unit that goes to any disaster area anywhere in the world. We were the first people in Haiti. We were the first people saving lives in, 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 in Nepal. You know, we can reach out. You can be, in other words, you can be a, a fervent Zionist who believes, obviously, I would say, in the Jewish nation's right to its historic homeland, and yet you can be filled with the spirit of conciliation and compromise, and you can be filled and focused on doing good and helping others. There is no necessary contradiction. And I don't, think, I don't think you need to have either hand behind your back. And if there are things that you wished Israel did more of or did less of, you know, we're all in this together, for goodness sakes. American Jewry, please God, you should long be able to leave proudly public Jewish lives. But world Jewry, much of world Jewry cannot enjoy the, the freedom to leave publicly proud Jewish lives that you enjoy here and that we enjoy in Israel. Israel is essential as a refuge even to people from Western Europe in our lifetimes. People are moving to Israel from France because they can't live comfortable, free Jewish lives there, they feel. It's not a mass exodus, but there's an ongoing stream of people. You know, the, the, our country had better work, and if there are things that you think we could do better and that you wish we placed more focus on, then, you know, do it. Encourage us. Ma make the effort. Help us. It's a beautiful answer, and thank you for it. Uh, George W. Bush had said there was an axis of evil. I think there's a new axis of evil, evil in particular for the state of Israel, and that would be Iran, Hamas, and Hezbollah. Which one keeps you up most at night, and why? Well, you know, I gotta tell you the truth. I mean, I, I, I stay up all night because, like I say, because your president's tweeting. Actually, two in the morning, it's already morning in Israel, so that's okay, but it's the, it's the late night here stuff that, that, you know, that keeps me going work-wise. I, you can't live like that. You can't live, and we don't in Israel, with like constant front burner fear, if you like. At the back of our minds, we know that we're in a really lousy region and lots of people 
really loathe us, and it's nothing personal. They just loathe us. It's not anything we did. They don't think we have the right to be here. They're rewriting history to disconnect the Jewish people from Jerusalem, and they're reinterpreting their own religion to assert that the finest thing you can do for God is kill Jews and Christians and non-believing Muslims in this perversion of, uh, of authentic Islam. All of that is there the whole time. There are periods in Israel where when there's you know, a particularly large number of people being attacked in the street with you know, knives or something, and second intifada, you know, when there were bombs going off every week or two, and in Jerusalem, boy, was that front burner. You didn't put that to the back of your mind. You know, we were being attacked every day. You knew people were trying to kill us, and about once or every week or two, they were, they were succeeding. But on the whole, you can't live like that. We go about our lives, and we thrive, for goodness sake, culturally, economically, we're, by the way, there's a survey that the UN does every March on contentment levels around the world, okay? You know, which countries, which people in which countries are the most contented? In the last survey, 2016, we came in above you guys, okay? I, I, I stress again, nine miles wide, western edge of a hostile, extreme region, landmass. And bad drivers. And bad drivers and a million other issues that we grab. And we're happier than you guys? I mean, what are you guys so... Anyway, you were like 13 in this worldwide poll. America, we were number 11. Scandinavia and Australia were cricketers on the front page. I mean, those are, the, those are the really happy countries. Don't feel too depressed. I think Germany was 26 and Britain was 23. Of course, it rains every day. That's, you know, that's why the Brits feel the way they do. But broadly speaking, we're a contented people. You know, we, we, we're aware that Iran would, you know, would like to nuke us. We're aware that Hezbollah is probably the most, most powerful terrorist organization in the world now with, with more than 100,000 rockets all aiming at Israel. Hamas has refilled um, re, re its rocket and missile um, arsenals and probably extended the range. It has been digging tunnels again. We're aware of all these things. If you, if you stayed awake at night because of that, you'd never sleep. There's other threats as well. That's the reality of Israel. We're also, however, stronger than we've ever been. We've, Israel's never been as strong militarily as it is today. That doesn't mean that we can decisively prevail in the kinds of conflicts that, conflicts that we're being drawn into. You know, we, when it's not tanks against tanks and, and planes against planes anymore. It's rockets fired from next to schools into our civilian areas so that when we fire back and do our best not to harm the people that they've placed in harm's way, we look bad defending ourselves. I mean, we get into, we're drawn into very complicated conflicts, but we are not puny, we are not weak, we are, we are incredibly resilient. People did not flee Israel in the Second Intifada when, when anywhere on earth was probably safer to live than Israel. We're not going to be easily terrorized into leaving our country. We're, we're aware of the threats and we get on with life you know, just fine nonetheless. So I have uh, two more quick questions for you. One, you're sitting amongst a synagogue that um, I proudly uh, can, can brag that is one of the most uh, engaged on Israel advocacy in the country. You are sitting in a chair that had the likes of Yossi Klein Halevi, Michael Oren, Danny Gordis, uh, Danny Danone, uh, um, Ido Aharoni, uh, uh, Ron Prosor. Israel advocacy, and this is just in you know, recent history, is something that we bring to our congregation often. Many of us go to APAC. Uh, we are involved in these issues in curriculum. But then what? What can this group do who clearly is passionate about Israel, loves Israel, supports Israel? How do we help transform that into being active citizens to make a difference that will help Israelis and help us in our continuation of fostering and deepening that love? 
Look, I, I'm aware that this is a very special community and I commend you for it and I think there's an element of self-interest in it. I think it's very important for Jews around the world to be knowledgeable about Israel and to understand Israel and to uh, be, be engaged with, involved with Israel. Uh, I think, we're, like I say, I think we're all, uh, we're all in, this, in, in this together. The Jewish people, I mean, we are, people think there are so many of us, right? And there are, you know, basically you know, tiny proportions of percentages of people uh, around the world. The big, two biggest communities are Israel and the United States, you know, six million or so each, and that's it. We never recovered in Europe from the Holocaust. I know you know this, but it's worth stressing it. There are, you know, may, maybe a million Jews in the former Soviet Union, if you're being really uh, um, generous with your definitions, and half a million in France and 300,000 in Britain, and that's it. Six million were wiped out uh, in, in the Holocaust, as, as of course we, you know, we, 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 we know. You know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a small little people that we are, and, and we better uh, look after each other. So, you know, the first thing I would encourage you to do is go to Israel as often as you can. I think, I think there's no substitute for it. I think, I think with all of the, the challenges and all the divisions that we have, you enter a, a, an engaged, passionate, vibrant society, and you, you pick up on it. You know, why is Capitol Hill so supportive of Israel? Because they, these politicians came to Israel probably with an APEC uh, uh, tour when they, were, when they were first making progress in their careers and they saw stuff firsthand and when you see stuff firsthand you know in Israel you become a friend of Israel for life so come become as knowledgeable as you can and then in whatever sphere of, of life where you can make a difference make the difference if you're at university then make sure you you know you know as much as you can because universities are where people's worldviews are shaped and if Israel is being misrepresented on campus, as it is on many campuses, and you're silent, that's not good enough, okay? You have to speak out, and you, and you can only speak out if you know what you're talking about, and you're not gonna uh, convince the haters, but you will convince the people who are non-decided if you are authentic and if you know what you're talking about. Uh, you know, if you're a rabbi, I've, I've met with, with rabbis who tell me in this country that they cannot discuss Israel from their pulpit on a Shabbat because it's too divisive. And there's nothing that they would say that would not antagonize parts of their community. I think if you're a rabbi who can't speak about Israel, you've got to get another job or change community. And, and maybe some of the things I've said today, although I've been you know, fairly mild and diplomatic by my standards, antagonize some of you. And maybe some of the things you say antagonize part of the community. Bring it on and then discuss it and then talk it through. I mean, we, you know, we all, our worldviews change all the time. You know, so it's not just rabbis and it's not just students. It's you know, the businesses that you're in, the areas of influence that you have, the friends that you have, the financial and, but also emotional and personal uh, uh, commitments that you can make. You know, I said it in, in answer to your previous question. If you wish that Israel did more of this, that, or the other, then help Israel do more of this, that, or the other. Mate, it's, if it's a financial thing, then see if you know somebody who can help. But if it's a, we need support, we need publicity, we need, you know, there's a pr I, I heard about this program in America that I think would be so wonderful if Israeli and Palestinian kids could do this. I, I don't know. There's endless opportunity. I'll give you one little, little example that touched my life. A friend of ours made Aliyah to Israel, I don't know how long ago, maybe 10, 20 years ago. He's Australian. Uh, he's, he's a seventh Dan. Any of you in this room do karate or martial arts? Just raise a hand if you do. Okay, well, you, you should do more of it, or maybe you're just being polite and didn't want to scare the people sitting next to you. But it's, uh, it's you know, martial arts gets a bad rap as, you know, smashing, you know, planks and stuff. It's really about mutual respect and harmony, and it's, you know, and as well as a capacity to, you know, defend yourself, of course. Anyway, this guy was a, is a seventh Dan black belt karate, which is astoundingly good at karate. And he decided he was going to use karate to promote interaction between 
different religions in Israel and Israelis and Palestinians, and he set up a program called Buddha for Peace, Martial Arts for Peace. And my second son, who's into karate, got into this program when he was 11. Um, <clears throat> and in fact, and therefore found himself for mitzvah boys. Just imagine this. Imagine that somebody had approached your parents. What are, you, what are your names, Jake and? Jake and Jesse, Jake and Jesse. Imagine parents of Jake and Jesse, that somebody had approached you and said, we know it's Jake and Jesse's bar mitzvah coming up, but there's this um, World Karate Championship in Tokyo, uh, just a week before the bar mitzvah. They'll be back by the Wednesday, Thursday before the Shabbat, don't worry, but we know they're in this program, we'd like them to go to Tokyo with us. That's what happened to us with Adam Horowitz, my second son. The week before his bar mitzvah was the World Karate Championships, and this Buddha for Peace, Israelis and Palestinians doing karate together, were invited to exhibit, to do a, to do a performance. At, <laughs> so what, what do you think we did, folks? Did we let Adam go to Tokyo, coming back on the Thursday morning before his bar mitzvah? Of course we did, of course we did. His, his grandparents who'd come from Texas, right, and who were not so young anymore, kept asking, like in the few days before the bar mitzvah, where is Adam? <laughs> and like I say, they were not so young anymore, so we didn't actually tell them, yeah, he's, you know, you'll see him, don't worry. <laughs> he got back a little late on the Thursday, it was fine, he took a CD with him, those were the days, right? 10 years ago to practice his parsha while he was in Tokyo, but it all worked out. That's a program that, and then Adam did army service, and he, was in, he did combat service, and he was a medic, and he saw some terrible things, he finished his army service last summer. He does not hate all the Palestinians, and the Palestinians with whom he has been doing karate don't hate all the Jews, and that's actually quite a big deal. It doesn't sound like much, it's a big deal. That's a program that one person started because he, he had a particular skill and he thought he could make a difference. So I don't know where you can make a difference, but I'm sure there are areas in which you can. Uh, last question is a quick one. Last night you told us who you enjoyed interviewing the most and who was the least pleasurable for you. This one's a little different. If you could sit down and interview anyone in the world, who would it be and what would you ask them? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. So, so uh, the person I most enjoyed interviewing was Jack Lemmon. If somebody wants to ask me why, I'll tell you afterwards. The, the least successful interview I ever did was I interviewed Paul McCartney on the phone before he came to Israel to play a concert. And he's been asked every question on, under the sun, of course, but his first wife was Jewish. Therefore, all his children are Jewish. And therefore, of course, I should have asked him about that Jewish thing but I didn't, because it only occurred to me afterwards. I asked him, you know, I said, my sister and my mother went to see you in, in London in 1964 at the Hammersmith Odeon, and he said, oh yeah, I remember them. So that, so <laughs> that, that was nice of him. Um, look, right now, you, I, I, a lot of me would want to interview, you know, the, the rulers of Iran, so I guess we're talking about Khamenei, because although our job as journalists, broadly speaking, is to, you know, tell people what other people are saying and doing and so on, you do shape people, and, and you, know, you would want to have the capacity to influence people who are affecting your world. Obviously, your new president uh, um, will be interesting for me if I get the chance to interview him. I did interview the last two presidents. I don't think I changed them in any way, but it was fascinating for us. You know, I, would, I would like to speak to, to people who, are, who, who shape our world. Those are the people you want to speak to. You understand where they're coming from, if you can. You know, you want to help them understand things that you think perhaps they don't see as clearly as, as you wished that, 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 that they would. Um, so, yeah, if, if any of you are, you know, pretty pally with, with Jared Kushner or, or, or people in that environment, David Horowitz is uh, um, willing and available and ready, along with you. Perhaps we'll do it together uh, to carry out that interview. I'm going to leave it to you. Uh, David, you uh, proved to all of us what I've been blessed to know and I think many others have uh, witnessed today. 
why APAC and why the Jewish world turns to you and reads from you to put their teeth into these issues that need a little chewing before we digest them. You have an uncanny gift, and it's a blessing for us and for the world.